My wife, uh, who's uh, from Minnesota, told me that 1010 was pretty wimpy. She suggested 3030, so that's the way it is. Sorry, all right? If it's 30 below, you can stay home. If there's 30 inches of snow, you can stay home. Otherwise, we'll be taking attendance. When I was a little boy growing up, um, my mother told me that I had presidential blood flowing through my veins. That on her side of the family, tradition was that uh, we were related to two presidents of the United States of America. The ninth president, William Henry Harrison, and the 23rd president, Benjamin Harrison. In fact, my middle name is Harrison in kind of a honor of uh, that heritage. And so... Growing up as a kid, I always thought that was really cool. And I would tell people, you know, I'm, I'm related to two presidents, the United States of America, William Henry Harrison and Benjamin Harrison. And it always gave me a kind of a sense of importance and identity. Well, a couple of years ago, my daughter Bethany, who has a background in research, decided to take the tradition and turn it into facts and create the whole family tree. And so she spent uh, a chunk of change and did a lot of work to trace back our family heritage And what she discovered is that uh, our Harrison tribe does not connect to the presidential Harrison tribe. And I had an absolute crisis. (laughs) I have been living all these years with a false sense of identity. The truth is, I'm just an ordinary, plain rapper Harrison. What she did discover, however, is that the Harrison side of the family... Uh, actually, you can trace our roots back to uh, Kentucky and Tennessee. So what I really have is hillbilly blood flowing <laughs> through my veins. And that gives me now a mixture of Dutch blood and hillbilly blood. And now I understand an awful lot about myself, all right, as a result of that. But seriously, have you ever looked at your life and just felt really plain and ordinary? Like you have an extra, uh, like you're playing an extra bit part in a, in a drama called Life, that you've been cast back in the shadows, and it's the good-looking people, the successful people, the powerful people, the gifted people who get the spotlight, not you. And you just wish there was something significant about your life, something important about who you are. When I think about Joseph, the husband of Mary, I think about somebody who comes across, at least initially, as rather insignificant in the Christmas story. How many of you were ever in a Christmas pageant as a child, a teenager, even as an adult? Let me see your hands, all right? Let's find out what you did. How many of you ladies were given the part of Mary in a Christmas player pageant? Let me see your hands when you're a little or teenager. You were the star of the show, weren't you? Because you held the baby Jesus in your arms and everybody looked at you. How many of you were wise men in a Christmas pageant? All right, see those hands going up? I think you had the best part. I mean, you got to wear those colorful uh, uniforms, those colorful costumes and uh, the golden crown, you know, and the jewels. And you paraded down the center aisle, remember, with those precious gifts of uh, frankincense and myrrh and gold that you were going to offer the baby Jesus. How many of you are angels? Let me see your hands. Wow, all right. All dressed in white, sparkles on the face, even having wings. You make the grand announcement that the Savior is being born. How many shepherds do we have? You get to carry that cool staff. You're the outdoorsy type, and you get a concert under the stars, right? 
How many of you are Joseph? <clears throat> Let me see your hands. Nobody wants to be Joseph, right? Because Joseph doesn't get to wear anything nice. I mean, you get to wear somebody's old house coat that smells like mothballs that's been brought out of the attic, right? And they give you a bath towel to wear as a turban around your head. And somebody, you know, like a producer or a director says, could you stand a little further behind Mary? Because we can't really see her and the baby and the wise men and the shepherds. And so you kind of disappear into the shadows. When you look at the life of Joseph, he lives in the shadows. A friend of mine, a preacher, calls him the forgotten man of Christmas. And when you think about Joseph, you have to accept the fact that he really was a nobody from nowhere. I mean, who had heard of Nazareth, this little town up in the villages, uh, up, up in the mountains of Galilee? He's poor. He's a carpenter. He's an ordinary Joe who's trying to eke out a living. Yet, as you read the story of Joseph, you cannot help but notice that God has something in store for his life. God is going to confront Joseph with the fact that he is not just an ordinary Joe, but that God is doing something extraordinary in him and through him. Let's find his story in Matthew chapter 1. Take your Bibles out and turn there with me, if you will, please. And I want us to look at verses 18 through 21. Then we're going to skip over to the Gospel of Luke. But Matthew chapter 1 in the New Testament is the first book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke. So Matthew chapter 1. And I'm going to be reading, reading out of the New Living Translation. So let's get started. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while he was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son. You are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, skip over two books to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2, verse 1, and we read these words. At that time... The Roman Emperor, Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. Now pay attention to verse 4. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who is now obviously pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. I like to imagine in my mind what that scene must have been like on that night that Jesus was born when God became flesh here on this earth. And there is poor and humble Joseph who perhaps helps in the delivery of that child and certainly at some point will embrace and hold and name the child. 
And what must have gone through his mind? And what must have gone through his heart as he held God in his hands? Imagine the scene with me as you watch this. God used the secular power of Rome to bring Joseph to Bethlehem to remind Joseph that he was a child of a king, King David. The blood of King David, so to speak, was flowing through the veins of Joseph himself. And there in Bethlehem, Joseph, in a sense, becomes David because God had made a promise to King David back in Samuel that he would have a descendant who would sit on his throne forever. And so there's this amazing thing that happens that night as Joseph holds that baby in his hands, the son of God in his hands. In a sense, Joseph is like David, holding the promise that God had made so long ago. Here is a child of the king holding now the king of kings. And it's an amazing story. You know, in Nazareth, Joseph was poor. But in Bethlehem, he discovers how rich he really is. In Nazareth, he's obscure. He's a nobody, an ordinary Joe. But in Bethlehem, Joseph comes to term with the extraordinary thing that God is doing in the world and the extraordinary part that he plays. He holds that child in his hands. 
this weekend, this Christmas season. I want to take you home to Bethlehem. I want you to come to the manger and I want you to discover how rich you are. I want you to discover how significant your life is. And nobody makes that clearer to us than the Apostle Paul, whom God inspired to write these words in his letter to the Ephesian church. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, we read these words. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. Those are some of the most precious and powerful words in Scripture that God conveys to us about our position and our significance to him. Just pick up on three words. Paul says that we have been chosen, and literally what that means is God has called us out. What's he called us out of? He's called us out of Nazareth. He's called us out of ordinariness. He's called us out of darkness. He's called us out of sin. He's called us out of guilt, and he's called us out of shame, and he's called us into the light, into a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, which allows us then to have a connection to God the Father. Paul says that this calling out happened in advance or was predestined. And that word predestined means to circle beforehand. Maybe you've had a newspaper in your hand at some point or a magazine and you were looking through the the want ads or maybe you were looking for a car or something that you you were uh, interested in buying. And something catches your eye, a job, a car, a thing, and you circle it with your pen or your pencil. You circle it because you want to call that number. You circle it because you want to apply for that job. You circle it because you want to buy that item. And it kind of stands out. What Paul says is that before God put one star in the sky, God circled your name. And God said, I want her. I want him. God didn't just circle all of humanity and say, I want them all. No, he circled your name, each one of our names individually. God circled and has called us out and called us into his family. Now, you can reject it. You can say, God, I don't care if you call me. I don't care if you circle me. I'm going to do my own thing. God gives you that freedom if you choose to do that. I don't know why anybody would want to reject that, but people do. God says, I called you, I encircled you beforehand, and then Paul talks about the fact that we've been adopted. And he uses a really interesting term for adoption there. In the ancient world, you could adopt a child, or you could adopt an adult. And the term that's used to adopt a child is different from the Greek term for adopting adult. And he uses the term for the adoption of adult in that passage. See, back in those days, if a couple were childless, and they wanted to pass on their name, and they wanted to pass on their money, they would oftentimes not adopt the child. 
they would wait and watch a child grow up. And then they would watch decisions that adult would make. They would watch their character and their virtues and what their values were. And if in adulthood they proved to that couple that they were worthy, then they would be adopted and that couple would give them their name and then the wealth would pass on to that man. What God is saying is that he sees our whole life and he wants us anyway. I don't know if you've ever adopted a child. But you know, when you adopt a child, you take a risk. Because you don't know exactly how that child is going to turn out. You don't know the decisions they will make. Will they run into trouble with the law or not? Will they be argumentative and difficult and rebellious or not? Will they make wise decisions financially or not? I suppose that if a couple could know everything about a child, who they were going to become, what they were going to be like, we'd have far fewer adoptions taking place in our world. God says, I see everything about you. I know the choices you're going to make. I know the mistakes. I know the sins. I know the rebellion. I know the problems that you're going to cause. I know all that about you. And yes, I want you. Isn't that awesome? I think it's great. Because sometimes, you know, I look at myself and I think to myself, I wouldn't want me. Don't you feel like that sometimes? You look at the mirror and something you said, something you've done. You just look at the habits in your life and you just go, I'm tired of me. Thank God of the universe must be absolutely put out with me. But God says, no, I already saw all that. I already knew about all that. And I still chose you. Man, that's good news, isn't it? That's exciting stuff. God says, I want you to be part of my family. Are you part of God's family? Have you responded to his invitation? Have you put your faith in his son, Jesus Christ? If not, may I ask you, why not? Why would you choose to live any other way? God loves you. God wants you. He went to the length of sending his son to die for you because he wants you to be part of his family. But you know what? It goes beyond that. Listen to what else happens as a result of being part of God's family. Romans chapter 8, verse 17, it says, Now, if we are children, here's what he means. If we are children, that is, if we put our faith in Christ, become adopted into God's family, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share his sufferings in order that we may also share his glory. Did you know that when you put your faith in Christ to become part of God's family, you receive an inheritance? Literally what Paul's saying there is this, that everything that belongs to Christ also belongs to you and also belongs to me. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 that Christ is seated in the heavenly places and that you and I are seated with Christ, spiritually speaking, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Our inheritance is secure. And someday when we leave this earth, whether by death or the second coming of Christ, we are going to meet our Savior in heaven and we will receive all of our inheritance to enjoy for eternity. But what amazes me is how many believers, I include myself from time to time in this scenario, live 
on this world with our heads down all the time on this life, on this earth. Trying to create an inheritance for ourselves. Trying to create an inheritance for our family. Thinking that this is what life is all about. Thinking about what we don't have. Wishing who we, who we uh, would like to be. Oh, I wish I was a celebrity. Man, I wish I was a sports star. Oh, if I could only be successful. Oh, if I only could live in this kind of house. Oh, if I could only drive this kind of car. We spend our whole time wishing for what we don't have, imagining what life could be like if we hit the lottery, if we got lucky enough, then my life would be fulfilled. Isn't that the most foolish thing in the world you ever thought about? When the reality is you're a child of God. You're a co-heir with Christ. You are wanted and loved by God. It's all waiting for you. Stop trying to make it happen here. You say, then why did God leave me here? God left you here for one reason and only one reason. And that is to tell other people that he's chosen them and loves them and wants them to be part of his family too. That's why he left us here. And I know some of you right now are going off on a theological debate in your mind. You want to talk to me about predestination? Don't email me. I don't want to hear about it, all right? You want to get off on theological nuances? You can argue about that and stand before God someday and let him ask you, why did you spend the 11 o'clock hour arguing theology in your mind instead of doing what I've asked you to do? And that is go out and bring people in to know the good news of my love and my grace. God will answer the big questions of predestination someday when we get into heaven. All I know is that right now he left me here for a reason. To tell people that he loves them, that he's called them, that he wants them to be part of his family. Well, we got Christians running around the world doing this. Oh, I wish I had more. Oh, I wish I could predict the future. Oh, I feel so insecure. Oh, this, oh, that, I wish. What don't I have? Instead of walking around saying, man, I'm rich. I am wealthy. I'm a co-heir with Christ. Oh, someday in heaven I'm going to enjoy all that God has for me. In the meantime, I've been deployed down here. And because I live in a sin-wrecked world where people reject God, yeah, I'm going to endure economic suffering and I'm going to endure physical suffering. But God says, even in your suffering, sometimes I shine out if you'll be faithful to me. And when I shine out of your life, you become an even more powerful witness in your suffering. So I'm willing to suffer on this little earth for a while because I know someday, whoo, I'm going to step right into eternity. And I'm going to receive my inheritance and spend the rest of my life with God. Now, either that's a fantasy, either that's just a psychological crutch. In that case, I vote we leave the church, we close it down, and just live with our heads down, bogged down by this world. But if it's not a fantasy, if it's not a crutch, if it is reality, then we are the most blessed people in the universe. Not only are we the most blessed people in the universe, but the reality is we've got royal blood flowing through our veins. We are chosen by God. We are rich, immeasurably rich in Christ. We are the home of God's fullness and presence. I love the story of John Kronstadt. He was a priest in the Russian Orthodox Church in the 19th century. When Russia was struggling with so much alcoholism, the other priests kind of shut themselves up in their churches and waited for the drunkards to come to them but 
John Kronstadt left his church. He went to the gutters of life and picked up the stinking, foul people consumed by alcohol poisoning. And he looked into their faces as he held them. And he said to them, you are living so far below your dignity. Don't you know you are a house for the fullness of God's presence? Wow. How can you live this way? You are a house that the fullness of God wants to inhabit. Folks, listen to me. If you're a follower of Christ, the fullness of God inhabits you. You just need to release yourself to experience that fullness in your life. Release yourself by eyes of faith. Looking up instead of looking down. Young people, listen to me. You're young. Paul wrote to Timothy, let no one despise your youth. If you're a follower of Christ this weekend, you have within you the fullness of the presence of God. You are a magnificent child of God, transformed by his grace. Don't worry about your peers. Stop trying to live up to what the other kids at school say you ought to be and what you ought to look like. And stop trying to please a certain crowd. Man, just every day, get up and focus on God. Rejoice in who he's made you. Read the scriptures. Claim those promises. And celebrate who God has made you. And celebrate the mission that he's called you to. Amen. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Would you bow your heads right now with me and close your eyes? If there's anyone here, young or old, this weekend who has not yet become part of God's family, you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, or you're just unsure if you ever did, you can do that right now. Become part of God's family. He's given you the invitation. I want you to respond. I want you to imagine that your hand is your faith. Right where you are, would you slip your hand up toward heaven? That's an expression to God saying, God, I'm putting my trust in you. And pray this prayer with me. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, I admit I'm a sinner and imperfect. I ask you to forgive my sins. God, I ask you to come into my life and take over this life of mine. I want to be your child. I want to live in your family. I want to live my life for purpose on this earth. And I know my purpose now to make you known to others. I receive you this day. If you prayed that prayer, then don't worry about feelings or emotions. The truth is, you are now a child of God. Welcome into his family. And after the service is over, please come to the guest center. Shake my hand like others have done. And just say to me, I prayed the prayer. And let me pray for you. Father, this morning, I ask that you would speak to our hearts as your followers. And that you would forgive us for how we have walked through this life with our heads down focus on what we don't have and who we are not. God, we lift our heads up toward heaven and we're reminded of who we are in Christ and all that we have as co-heirs with Christ. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.